am I easygoing or am I a people pleaser? I think that's quite a relatable tagline because, uh, you know, I think that the two can go hand in hand and, and maybe in there we can ask ourselves, am I easygoing when my values, my needs are met? You know, am I still easygoing or am I easygoing because I'm neglecting my, my own values and needs and just going with the flow? You're listening to Stream, the South African mental health and business podcast. And today I am got a returning guest, shaman, counselor from Momwell, and we are going to be chatting about people pleasing. Now I know that if you are tuned into today's episode, then you can 100% relate to what we're going to be talking about. We're also going to be sharing some stories and you might think to yourself, what on earth that is completely not something I do or you'll feel like that is exactly what you do. Either way, we've got some funny stories to tell, some relatable stories, some very valuable insights and some wisdom, of course, from Shaman, some takeaways that I personally am definitely going to be implementing into my life and practicing we're talking about people pleasing. I made notes and I actually, while I was making notes, I was remembering scenarios of where, especially in my like twenties, I was such a people's pleaser. I've actually got like one or two stories that I might share, but like the one I'm a pretty, I feel sorry for younger Marisa because yeah, I don't know if it's people pleasing as much combination of people pleasing, not in, not liking conflict, not liking people not wanting people to feel bad, that whole, um, yeah, that all, it, all of that in a nutshell, basically. Do, do you think there was a time where you realized you're people-pleasing or did someone say like, hey, this is what you're doing? Like, how did you become aware of people-pleasing, like in your own? That's a good point. I'd say... When I became more self-aware, started doing therapy, went into that transition, which only happened in my later 20s, I'd say that was when I read up a lot about people-pleasing. And I think it, it's often just loosely swung around people saying, I'm a people-pleaser, etc. Um and I don't, I think it was, yeah, during that time that I realized I was, I mean, yeah, there were, it came up in relationships. So whether it's friendships or, or family relationships, romantic relationships, that's when I realized when I was unhappy, when things go bad, and that's when you realize you want therapy or you, you're needing sort of external, you know, help or resources or validation. I think that's the period when I realized, wait a minute, I am people pleasing because I am doing things that are sacrificing my own happiness. I think that's when. Yeah. I had a cringe moment. I I think it was like MySpace era. Um, and I was a, an, a young teen. Uh, and there was one of those, you know, quizzes, like find out what cheese you are. And <laughs> those things. There was a... Oh, are you a people pleaser? And I was like, oh, and did this. And it was such a shocking revelation to see, okay, this this is me. Um, but it was just this term that was flown around and I didn't really understand what it was, where it came from. Also until sort of more self-awareness, entering therapy myself, and then it being explained and pointed out, you know, um, there was there was a lot of avoidance from my side, and I remember a therapist saying, "You know, you need to confront this this person." And I was like, "No, I couldn't do that. What if they get upset?" And I was like, "Oh, okay. Let, let's unpack this. Let's go there." Um, but yeah, okay. I think maybe we should start. Maybe we should start with storytelling. I'll tell you one of the stories of my of then realizing, well, yeah, realizing I was a people pleaser and something had to be done around it. Okay, so the one, let me paint the picture. I was probably 20 or 21, my first job um, working within the PR industry. And my boss and I went to a meeting at the VNA Waterfront. And I had to, this is 
part of what my job at the time was, and this is going to sound so like ancient for some people listening, but we, so PR, you need to generate publicity for your clients. And it's obviously not a given that the, say a journalist says that they're going to feature your clients in an October edition. Um, it's not a given that it actually ends up in print. Like they might have last minute edits and they might change things and then that publicity doesn't appear. So my boss at the time, instead of going to purchase the magazine, um, we didn't make use of a media monitoring software service, which later on came out and we um, started using it. So we had to manually go and search for coverage, go look if your your coverage has, has appeared. So anyways, went to exclusive books often to go and sit there and go through all of the publications that our 10 to 15 clients might be like, they might be in there. This is also not something that you should be doing because most of the magazines are like wrapped still in plastic. I would feel so like guilty, but boss didn't want us to purchase unnecessarily. So anyways, I'd go sit there and now before my meeting with my boss and a client, I quickly ran to exclusive books to tick off for my list, having to check 10 magazines if these various clients have actually appeared in there. Now you're having to go through it and like with a fine eye, etc. And I'm standing there going through this one magazine and out of the corner of my eye, I see a gentleman bent down. And as I look, he sort of looks away and you know when you just get this like yucky feeling um, and I look down and I notice he's got a mirror that he's reflecting up my dress and he's like taking a peek and now me being so oh just like I've said before didn't have a fucking backbone I look at this and he suddenly moves and now in my head I'm thinking, am I seeing things? Am I overreacting? Like, surely someone wouldn't do that. And instead of saying something, I put the magazine down and I walk out of exclusive books and I go tell my boss what happened. And she's like, we have to go find this man. This is disgusting. And I'm like, please don't cause a scene. Like, I don't know if, if I don't know if that was what I saw. And that would, would just, that scenario, like I feel so, oh, I'm, obviously this was way before Me Too movement. But things like that had happened to me, maybe not like very similar to that occasion, but in the past where I didn't stand up because I was so afraid of A, causing a scene or B, conflict or being wrong. Like I'm wrong. Who on earth would do that? That that wasn't what he was doing. I mean, what fucking did I think in my head he was doing looking for dust underneath the like bookshelf? <laughs> So that was the one scenario. That's like key people pleasing, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and like such a, a a prominent example of here's this predator that is violating really my personal space. There's so much going on there that's just not okay. But the reaction of, of, of the person with this sort of sociotropic tendencies is, oh, I don't want to make a fuss. I, I, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to upset anyone. And really putting his needs of getting on his perv over yours. So, and, and I think that's like, you know, exactly what it is. It's 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 putting their needs in front of your own. Uh, and as long as he's okay and no one makes a fuss and no one's misaccused, um, we can just carry on. And sure. I know. And, and I often, so, so what would bring along these... Because I know a lot of people say that they are people pleasers and I, I sometimes joke and say I'm a people pleaser, but I think where I've shifted and worked on myself, I really, especially in a business sense, really want to perform and I do get um, sort of excited when I get external validation and when I've had my entrepreneurial journeys where it's just been me making the decisions and I haven't had a business partner, I've often found it hard because I'm not getting this constant validation or, you know, tap on your shoulder, you're doing an amazing job or like uh, my absolute favorite is when someone calls me machine, like, oh my word, Marie's a machine, that's amazing. <laughs> like, and so... I know I've still got those tendencies, but I do have a backbone. I do work on conflicts. I do try. 
Um, there's certain scenarios I don't like public conflict. Um, and and yeah, I'll assess sort of situations. I've come a long way. But like what in so many, like everyone listening basically that can relate to people pleasing, where does it come from? Where does it stem from? And why is there such a natural need for so many of us to please others before ourselves? I, I think excellent question. Let's let's dive in there. But just back to Marisa the machine, um, which I think is so relatable. People pleasing is a trait that gets so much validation. If you think sort of um, with a work sense, personal sense, relationship with people pleasing, often the person is, oh, you're so kind. Thank you for going out of your way. And Oh, you, you really put me first. So that sort of revalidates the the exact traits we're trying to stop. And I think um, with people pleasing and, and self-esteem, we are looking for that external validation. And through people pleasing, we get it. So it's the self-fulfilling prophecy um, and, and the cycle that we get stuck in. Um, I just think that that stood out to me and I think something we can all relate to. Um, but yeah, back to... Where does it come from? I think people pleasing, you know, we can think of as um, a, a trait. And I, I've seen that misused before where um, there's a, what is it What is it called? The disease to please, um, which, which I think is quite fun and catchy and it, 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 it's powerful. But people pleasing isn't a disease. Um, it's a, a, a learned adaptive behavior. Um, not a condition or a clinical diagnosis. It's not something that you know you can you can label in that way. Rather, a a tendency, a trait, or, or an adaptive behavior that we've learned. Um, most people pleasers were parent pleasers, and you know there's a strong childhood background to to that. Um, often the people that are people pleasers were people in their their family homes that have felt overly responsible for parents' emotions. Um, and you know, this can be varying in extremities, whether it's sort of trauma or abuse or neglect. Um, but even sort of emotional expression, if in the home that we grew up in, perhaps anger, was very volatile, maybe it was explosive, and maybe anger was really scary, that child may have taken on the role to avoid anger. So anger comes out as aggressive or explosive, really scary, unpredictable. Okay, I I, I don't want anger coming up again. So the child can take on the role of trying to be the peacekeeper. Let's try make sure mom is, is happy. Let's make sure mom's calm. Uh, we don't want mom to get angry. So our role becomes how can we make sure mom's okay um, and and we'll do anything to to avoid those those negative expressions. Um, and I think sort of that as as a child, we are driven to survive. Uh, we can't survive alone. We can't grocery shop, we can't cook, we can't fend for ourselves. We need um, our parents to survive and we need their attachment. What would we do to ensure that anything? And sometimes that looks like uh, sabotaging our own feelings, our own thoughts to protect our parent because that's the attachment we need. We need our parents to keep us alive and loved. Uh, um, yeah. Gosh, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Um, and this is obviously not something that once you've come to the realization you're a people pleaser, it's like a process, right? To deprogram and to, because I, even with myself, I feel like it's, I deep by default often go back to it. Um, and I can see it in scenarios when I meet new people. Uh, something that I've always had as a child as well as, if I meet someone new and I'm not too familiar with them and something embarrassing happens to them, whether they walk into a sliding door or trip or accidentally fart or whatever it may be, I will flat out ignore that I saw it just to make them feel less embarrassed. 
Like I've often had scenarios like that. And obviously not if it's like someone fell and they, they injured and sore. I won't just turn my back. But just that feeling of, I don't know why, I just feel very uncomfortable. If it's someone that I don't know, I don't want them to feel awkward or uncomfortable or embarrassed. Embarrassed is, is I suppose, the biggest thing. And I wonder if a part of that is also having felt that feeling and knowing how unpleasant that embarrassment or that shame is, that doing anything at any cost to avoid someone else experiencing that same feeling. True. Actually, oh my gosh, like now another, I've just had a flashback shame. Like I really make out as if I was like this, this little mouse of a child who wasn't, didn't have a strong personality, which is not true. I did, you know, um, as I got older, I did become more confident in certain ways, but I, I of course had quite a bit of insecurities and, and was quite shy. And when I was in Sun at six, my sister was in matric, um, She's really popular and really loud as us Italians are. And so everyone knew who she was and she, the, the matrix were initiating us. And I just remember so many scenarios of being, because initiation back then was still like proper initiation. You know, it's not like nowadays um, you did some pretty embarrassing things. But one scenario was I still remember my friend and I were helping a teacher. We just saw at break time, um, our teacher was carrying out things out of the car and we decided to help her. Uh, that was an unusual trait for me. <laughs> Teacher's pet was not was not um, part of my role in high school, but uh, we helped her. And as we walked across the matric um, grounds, all the popular boys were playing um, soccer, and this ball came right at me, hit me in the face. But you know that feeling where you feel like you've it's dented in your face, or you got this stinging feeling, like you feel like your whole face is dismantled and hit me and instead of saying anything because I knew all these boys knew who I was because of my sister uh they they actually they didn't laugh they didn't do anything they just it was so hard that they were like are you okay and I just looked at them and I went I'm fine and I walked into the school <laughs> I didn't say anything I was like I can't so like all those things happened and I suppose that yeah that just reminds me of what you said and um, yeah, feeling that feeling and sense of embarrassment and not wanting someone else to feel it. Yeah. And, and I think sort of that's what a lot of people pleasing is, is, is the avoidance of uncomfortable emotions, the avoidance of the feelings of guilt. I don't want to feel bad. Um, I don't want to feel bad for somebody else. I don't want someone else to struggle. I don't want someone else to feel pain. Um, and, and I'll do anything to avoid discomfort for anyone else which could be a good thing but then sort of we see that it goes too far and in avoiding someone else's pain we neglect ourselves so i think that the, the ball to our face we're neglecting our, our our physical pain we're not okay we're hurt we're angry we're embarrassed this is terrible but to avoid anyone's negative feelings, that's fine, I'm okay, like this big welt growing on the side of our face. But no, we're fine. Gosh, why do emotions have to be so complicated? <laughs> um, that's the other, yeah, that's the, that's the, like how do, okay, so acknowledging you're a people pleaser is one thing. And I feel like the tipping point, at least for me, what I've experienced has been when it's, when it's been to your detriment to the extent that you're so unhappy. So if it's a relationship and you just realize that things have to, like almost the tipping point's almost when it's too late, you know? So things have built up to such a point where that's when the realization comes for change, which I suppose is so, you know, uh, relatable in other things that happen to us when, you have to hit rock, rock bottom to change, which is what so many people say. But um, yeah, I'm just thinking of more coping mechanisms for these scenarios. Like if you do find that it is coming up or it's going into default mode of people pleasing, what are sort of actions that we can take? Is it stepping back? Um, is it building up confidence for conflict before 
you know, it gets to a point where you've built up resentment. All of those. Um, I think that the, the importance to be placed on the fact that this is probably been a adaptive behavior most of your life. Um, I can look back on my life and see these tendencies from, you know, a, a really, really young child. Um, so it's been part of most of us, most of our lives, if, if, if we can identify these tendencies. So to turn off something that I've been carrying for, you know, 30 odd years is not something that I can just switch off. Um, and I think it's also important to acknowledge that this behavior is often a survival response, that this behavior has in, in, in some ways probably kept you safe, that these behaviors may have served or benefited you, um, not to this degree and, and perhaps not for this long. And, and there are times where we, we should separate that. But also some self-compassion into you know, I didn't. I didn't choose to 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 learn these behaviors, and these behaviors have served me at some point. So I think we could be quite hard on ourselves when trying to shift these tendencies, um, but to just sort of bring some of that self compassion that this is a long learned uh, behavior or survival um, tactic. Um, there's actually uh, some interesting reading by a psychotherapist, his name's Pete Walker, and he uses the word fawning, which is is, is a term um, that he's put with flight, uh, fight, freeze as a, a survival uh, mechanism. And he added fawning as the fourth one, which I think is sort of exactly this, and, and it's people-pleasing as a survival technique. So if I meet your needs and I do everything you want we can be safe and survive. So fawning, we can look at as the people pleasing of survival. So these things are learned, they're reinforced, and they're carried with us. So really hard to just turn off. It's not as simple as I'm a self-confessed people pleaser. From now on, I'm just going to say no. It's not going to work. Um, so I think some of the things we can begin to look at after the awareness is... Um, I think safety is important. Uh, often with people pleasing, it's born from a place of not feeling safe um, or not feeling heard or not feeling unconditional love. Um, so trying to tackle these tendencies, I wouldn't uh, suggest doing it in a space that you didn't feel safe. Yeah, because again, this is your this is this has been in some ways your security blanket. Um, so to challenge these behaviors, uh, I, I wouldn't invite someone to to really tackle this if they're not feeling safe. Um, so I think once once we're there and we're feeling ready to to tackle some of these things, um, and we've got the awareness and we're feeling safe and and, and ready, um, I think one of the the places we can look at is self connection. So in constantly or always pervasively looking into how other people are feeling, what other people are going through, focusing on their needs above our own. We're so invested in them. We know everything that ticks them off, that 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 turns them on. We know them inside and out. How far have we gone from ourselves? So we've spent all this time and energy into other people, we can feel quite disconnected to self, especially if we've been doing this early childhood. We're so attuned and hyper vigilant. I mean, I can relate to that so much on how everyone else is thinking, feeling, what's going on with myself. So I think that one of the first steps there is trying to reconnect to self. And what do what do I like? What do I not like? Where am I in this journey? What am I feeling? And what is their feeling? Um, and really sort of connecting to self. Um, that I think from a, a practical space, what can we do? Uh, boundaries, everyone's favorite word, um, and, and, and on one we're not all good at. Um, but maybe a, a, a safer place to start could be some soft boundaries. So the goal would be to be assertive and 
but in reality, we're not all there yet. Again, this is a behavior that's protected us, that's kept us safe. It's what we've learned is what we know to go complete on the other polar, the other side is, is maybe unrealistic. So perhaps it's about looking at some soft boundaries. Um, and that could look like instead of no, uh, we could respond with, let me think about it for a little while, or can I get back to you on that one? Or, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to give it a bit more thought. So we're giving ourselves a moment to think about, is this something that I have the time to do? Is this something I have the capacity to do? And is this something I really want to do before? Yes, I'll do it. Um, and then thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said yes. And we go into this analysis paralysis. So a soft boundary there could be giving us a bit more time. Um, yeah. That's, um, and, and as you were talking, it just reminded me that people pleasing, like we know, comes up in different forms. And I suppose some people might be listening, thinking they're people pleaser and yeah, my, you know, younger self, um, not standing up for myself and going, whoa, they're not like that. Maybe they're not people pleasers, but something that I pick up in, uh, in Rocco, like my husband, when I chatted to him, I asked him if I could bring up this, this scenario because we were on a walk and I was just talking about the topic that we were going to be discussing. And when I first met him, his people-pleasing came up in the form of not being able to say no to invitations. And now it's been like six years later, he's changed a hell of a lot since we've been together. It actually changed. It, that's actually a good sign is it changed quite quickly once someone could confront him and talk to him about what he was doing and how it was making other people feel. Um, and of course, I think at the time when I brought it up, we were so, you know, infatuated, new relationship. So it hit hard and, and he started making changes. But what he used to do, and he became known amongst his friendship group of like, oh, but that's if he pitches up. Like, you know, we're going to have a bride tomorrow and Rock will be like, perfect, I'll be there. I'll for sure be there. And he'll just not rock up. And I, when I got to know him, He's so the opposite to that, like that type of person. Like he's so reliable, so loyal. But why was he doing that? Like why I started having fear that that was going to come up in our relationship, um, which at the very, very beginning, there were one or two case scenarios where he committed and then, you know, last minute, he, I just didn't hear from him. So I quickly called him out on that. And his sort of reasoning was just like, yeah, but I might still go. So I don't want to say no. So if they invite me, you know, I have all intention to go. I really want to be there. So in the moment, his intention is to people please because he wants to go. He wants to be there. But then something else will come up and he just won't go. And there would be no form of communication. And he'd also be late a hell of a lot. And as soon as he had to sit down and hear about like, you know that your friends have given you a reputation for being that person, he was almost ashamed because he didn't know externally what the feedback was or what was happening. There wasn't a lot of confrontation or it would be come up in a jokey scenario. And he shifted that. So now he's moved his sort of thinking, which which is what you were mentioning about soft boundaries. If he is invited, his first response is like, that sounds amazing. Let me just triple check. Let me triple check with my wife or let me just triple, triple check my calendar. But I'd love to be there. Like that's now the soft boundary response. And then he can come home and decide, you know, does he want to be there? Does he want to go? You know, whatever it may be. But that was quite bad. Like his people pleasing tendency came up in that form. But then also where I was younger, people pleasing, I'd do things to make me unhappy. He wouldn't do anything to make him unhappy or to compromise his values. So it's just interesting to like see how people, people please. And I think that when I was younger, you know, you think it's one way of doing it and you just, yeah, you're just saying yes to things. And um, so, yeah, that was just one thing that I was thinking of when you were, when you were chatting. I think there's that, that sort of not saying no to an invitation um, or not saying no when someone asks for help. I think those are quite uh, common examples. And, and I think they stem from that place of conditional 
love and parenting uh, where, you know, oh, well done, you're such an amazing child when you do something. Uh, or, you know, oh, you're so special, look how well you did. Or you help mommy so much, I really love you for helping me all the time. Those kind of messages, they come down to, okay, well, if I want this love, if I want this recognition, if I don't want to be rejected, I've got to perform. And if I don't perform, if I say no, if I don't do something, my love's conditional. They're going to reject me. They're going to abandon me. They're not going to love me. So we just say yes, 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 because even exhausting ourselves or even depleting ourselves is better than being rejected or abandoned. Totally. Isn't it interesting that we've so, so many of us have been brought up the same way when it comes to that? Is that on that note, is there something as a parent that you can do to not enable that sort of behavior? Because I, I know, of course, you can pick up as a child growing up, these sort of influences don't necessarily just come from your, from your parents. But as a parent that has such a big impact on your child's sort of upbringing and their behavior, is there anything you can do that doesn't enable that? If, if if you figure it out, then you can, you know, <laughs> no, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. And I think it's been part of that reparenting process is realizing so much about your own childhood and, 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 and sort of relearning that as, as a parent. I think one of the things that we, we can have a look at is affirming our child, our children, um, for, for who they are, not what they do. Mm. Um, and that's a small thing that we can start bringing into awareness is just as you are, um, you know, without doing anything, you're an incredible child um, or sort of, you know, without giving them affirmations on what they've done or what they could do, rather affirming who they are just as they are, that you are enough exactly as you are. You don't need to perform to be loved that that love is 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 unconditional um and sort of really affirming the the child rather than their behaviors and and you know it is so diverse and multifaceted it's not sort of avoiding any compliments on behaviors um but that isn't the only time that they're loved appreciated cuddled rewarded is by a behavior, but that that comes naturally from being exactly who they are. Heal. That's, I can only imagine, incredibly hard because, yeah, if I just look at our family and, and my nieces and friends with kids, um, especially depending on my nieces now just turned eight, and sports is very, very big at the school that she goes to. And at that age already, they're so competitive. And there is so much that as a child at that age, they're looking for this external validation. And now you have to practice daily to remind yourself not to, like you almost said, not to praise them on the performance of their athletics or their, um, you know, education or whatever it may be, but to to yeah in other ways give them validation for just being them and of course it's hard because is that the way that we speak to ourselves in our own head like daily when it comes to our work tasks how hard um moms are first time moms are when they no longer have the ability to be as productive as they used to be in work now you have to tell yourself you are amazing just the way you are not by ticking things off your to-do list Gosh, that's, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. And, 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 you know, people pleasing and the validation go hand in hand. The Marisa the machine or, you know, the helpful child, you know, there's this, the, the, the child that's, or the, the teenager, the adult that has been violated um, by, by a stranger in a bookshop, you know, the, the, there's this constant, I don't want to make scene, I don't want to make anyone else unhappy. Um, and then we get we get validated for that. So the girl that's, you know, the, the the phrase that's coming up in my mind is is the good girl, you know, this young child. And we've been there. We've seen it as women. It was us. It's everywhere. You know, don't make a scene. Like keep keep quiet. Keep your pain inside. Um, you know, it's it's everywhere. It's such a strong societal string in 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 our lives. 
like mums pinching their kids when they're crying to stop it. <laughs> Don't make a scene. Yeah, and then that that message travels through. You know, I I can't make a scene. I've got to keep my feelings inside. On the outside, I have to seem that everything's together. Of course, it's individual. I think for me, if I just look back and how I was, like all these sort of, and this is where I think a parent role um, can be so beneficial, is it, for me, if I did something like acting in my younger years, um, not to pursue a career in it, um, but to just act and get out of my comforts, become more confident in conflict. Like, I just think to myself, you know, if I had those scenarios, even if it's acting, but acting out conflict, acting out these scenarios, impromptu conversations, um, I think that would have helped me a hell of a lot. In fact, I now, and yeah, that was one thing that you were, so you were mentioning sort of areas where we can work on ourselves and safety, self-awareness, um, and what I was, and, and soft boundaries. And what I also feel now in my later years, I've, n we've just signed up recently to masterclass. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. 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 So, um, we were toying with the idea because so much of the past few years, we've been upskilling in areas of like proper sit down courses that were more sort of theory based, or you really have to concentrate. And then now we've just gotten to a point where we've got capacity in the evenings, um, you know, to sometimes watch something that you don't have to have your full attention towards, but, you know, you're gaining some insights. And so with Masterclass and all these different people in different industries teaching about this, so their fields, I've started watching mainly because of who the teacher is, but the acting uh, classes by uh, Natalie Portman. Um, and I just love her, but... I don't want to necessarily, you know, pick up skills to to implement my day-to-day -day life. That will be a bonus if I do, if there is something. Um, but I just am so fascinated, yeah, by this, by these different industries and wanting to learn things that maybe can help with my character building. And I had a case scenario the other day. Um, one thing that I also avoid is I just do, I feel very uncomfortable when I'm sitting with friends or clients whoever maybe and someone's rude to a waiter that's just something that like has always just upset me or rude to someone who's like you know behind a teller and so of course if unless it's something completely unreasonable but you know and I also I was a waitress so I completely have so much empathy for there being so many difficult people out there but um the other day I did have a, a scenario where I was ordering something and the bill came out incorrectly and I just had this fire inside me that I was started off polite, kind, and I took on this conflict and I feel shitty afterwards, but I still felt so good for standing up and for once not just, you know, letting it slide and just walking away and letting that person have their tantrum or whatever it may be. And I feel like those sorts of scenarios where course like therapy and everything else it's an ongoing journey where I can actually just you know get the confidence together to practice conflict to practice those difficult conversations that's the only way I'm going to get better um, especially being far away from family and friends like I need discomfort hence why we also started <laughs> ice water bath like uh, baths in the morning which is freaking the worst thing Man. ever but nothing nothing good to say about it but I still keep doing it and it's it's that element of discomfort that I don't have in my life yeah. <laughs> I yeah I'm not about to plunge into an ice bath I don't think not today um but I, I'm with you sort of leaning into that discomfort um and 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 I don't know if you know maybe it's acting classes maybe that does help um I mean they're preferable if they're led by Natalie Portman I don't know if high school drama classes have got it, but then, you know, maybe that is something and I don't profess to have it figured out at all, but maybe it is something that we can incorporate into, um, you know, our, our family homes is modeling healthy conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, showing that conflict can be 
healthy. It doesn't have to be explosive and scary, and it doesn't have to be avoided and and dismissed that there's this place in the middle where we can be angry and we can be hurt and we can vocalize that this isn't okay and and modeling that behavior because I think that is essentially the best thing we can do is to is to model um, you know these things rather than to teach them to our children and modeling that conflicts can be really beneficial it can show resolution it can be healthy it can be love it doesn't have to be angry scary or completely avoided and I think the same with emotion um, I, I can sort of relate as a, a child that was a parent pleaser and you know trying to take on those emotions of parents um, and you know trying to diffuse their emotions for them and I think the role we can take as parents now is is authenticity in our emotion um, that mommy's really upset I'm feeling really sad there's um, you know a yuckiness in, in, in my heart or I feel emotional uh, mommy feels very close to tears um, and and really explaining identifying the emotion and uh, that I feel sad mm-hmm. and I think by displaying identifying and giving the children the vocabulary for those emotions um, so that they don't have to guess or to diffuse or be hyper vigilant around what mom and dad are feeling and also, I think something that I need to, or I've, I've got this, this is some area that I've gotten much better in um, and not to just be quiet, but is to have those conversations where, you know, you might not, dis- you might disagree with someone, but actually feeling confident in bringing that up and knowing that it's okay to disagree. I think that often, you know, even in a household, if someone particularly in your household always has to be right and you feel like you can't voice your opinion because even if you do you're not right I think yeah that's another area that just just making sure that you know you're not altering the way you I know like someone like that where you know you come up in conversations and they might like slightly disagree with you but then they like completely are like turn it around and they're suddenly agreeing with you and yeah just just to call kind of keep the peace um and that's yeah that's I suppose a big one as well is being okay with the fact that like not everyone has to be on the same page and agree with things it doesn't mean that that's a big argument and disputes but yeah that's uh that conversations can go that way as well and and again sort of how we might have experienced that in childhood sitting at the dinner table with our family and saying something and the reaction of the family bit, that's not okay, that's not what we believe in this family um, and, and shutting that down, that child is then terrified. Well, I don't want to be rejected by my family, you know, I, I'll, I'll keep that to myself. And then that can play out in adulthood that I'm not allowed to have different feelings. I'm not allowed to disagree with the majority. I'm not allowed to, to, to stand up and share those feelings because if I do, I might be rejected. Yo, that's massive. Yeah. Um, so again, maybe that's something we can try and incorporate in, in our families is that differing opinions aren't negative. They aren't bad, that they're appreciated and they can be spoken about. And I think vulnerability there is is the key that we can have these vulnerable conversations and bring them to the table, the, the, the messy, the emotional, the raw, um, different opinions, whatever it is that 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 we can talk about them and there's space for them, and that the child is loved regardless of of those expressions or those feelings or differing of opinions. That's where that's where debate will come in in handy is practicing debate at school. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got okay, I've got one more story that we can end off with on a on a this is not as sad as previous. Well maybe in certain aspects it's sad, but um I when I I can't remember my age, maybe twenty-four, twenty-five, I um was going to Rocking the Daisies Festival uh beforehand, was going to get my hair done and wanted to Brunette should never do this or yeah, not just spontaneously at least and go to the right hairdresser. 
decided to get highlights. Um, and I went to this hairdresser that was a hairdresser of our friends. And I just said, you know, feeling obviously quite festival-like and wanted to get highlights done. And after she took the foil off, I'm not over-exaggerating, but this front piece of my hair, like this whole section, was this supposedly blonde but piece, hey? Like not like woven in discreetly, like a piece of blonde, which obviously with my hair color and the bleach, it came out like this orange. And I was in absolute shock sitting there and typically all I said was oh it's nice (laughs) I couldn't got run to and I you know when you're like so upset and what makes you even more angry is the fact that you're just keeping quiet because you can't say anything I left there I paid I went to the garden center shopping mall down the road from us went to go buy like a clicks hair dye that I could do at home, went home, immediately dyed my hair before my friends were picking me up for rocking the daisies and shame old me, it didn't do, I didn't do a proper job so that bleached little piece was still sticking out. It was so, like, I can't believe I could not say anything. Like, and I, and yeah, instead of saying something, I, in my mind, I think I was so shocked that she thought that this was fine, that this was a cool look, that it looked, it just looked horrendous and it didn't even look funky or like something you would have seen in a magazine that was ultra trendy that you'd regret years later it was just shocking so yeah that was my last story of people pleasing just shutting up and letting the hairdresser do what she did and walking out there and needless to say I never went back are you the kind of person that if you receive an order at a restaurant that's completely wrong do you say anything or just eat the wrong order no, no, no. So I'll say something. So so I've gotten better with, I mean, that's food, shaman. Like, <laughs> Hair and food, different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally different. I could look like an idiot, but just feed me what I ordered, please. <laughs> I think it also ties in with the fact that I really have, um, obviously I don't always want to come across like looking like an like in like a chop but I think just yeah my looks haven't been a big thing for me growing up that I really cared so much about what I looked like it was more important for me to just yeah nurture relationships people please um but no food when it comes to food and I've ordered something and they've forgotten something or or the worst is when you like that you the one at the table that is so hungry you've already made up what you want to what to order off the menu everyone else is taking their time finally the order goes in and your food doesn't rock up <laughs> like that's my absolute worst but I won't be I won't be rude about it I'll I'll be upset about it I think food food and hunger like my family often joke because I'm not I that's where my um that's where I can stand up for myself is <laughs> like your primal instinct <laughs> totally don't mess up my food it's just please so no, no, I'm not one of those people. But if if at the table, there's often been case scenarios where like someone else has ordered, you know, what I've ordered, but they've gotten the wrong meal. And if I, I'm in a point like I don't mind, I'll be like, let's just swap. Like don't cause a fuss. You know, you can tell the waiter. I think that's important to tell the waiter, tell the chef, but don't blame the waiter. Don't be absolutely rude because whether it's the waiter's fault or it happened in the kitchen, you don't know. So, you know, that's where I'll assess the situation. But I will, to please the, to make the peace and to not cause conflict or something at a restaurant. And it doesn't, you know, unless it's anchovies and something I don't eat, I'll just, I'll just, you know, offer to, (laughs) to eat whatever. To swap if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's palatable, if it's something you like. Exactly, exactly. I don't know. I think it's also, I get it from my dad. We're very easygoing. So a lot of the times I think that's where I had to do the the real analysis of, am I just easygoing and so-called chilled or am I a people pleaser and doing things to sort of my detriment and building up resentment, which I for a very long time thought that I was just easygoing and chilled, um, which I still am to a certain extent. But I'm becoming, especially before having kids and raising kids, like 
I want to be able to stand up for myself in ways that, you know, protects our family. So I am that again, that's where I think it's becoming more important to me because it's not just about me, it's about the family. Um, so I do need to practice it for myself. But when other people are brought in, and if, you know, it is a case scenario where, for instance, Rock and I've had sort of issues with our gym membership, small little example, and there's, you know, incompetent staff helping us, that's when I'll stand up, that's when I'll cause a little bit of a fuss and be upset because it's for us as a collective and also because I'm in a safe space of having my partner there, whereas I need to practice that on my own. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great one, sort of, am I easygoing or am I a people pleaser? I think that's quite a, a, a yeah, a relatable tagline because uh, you know I think that the two can go hand in hand and and maybe in there we can ask ourselves am I easygoing when my values my needs are met you know am I still easygoing or am I easygoing because I'm neglecting my my own values and needs and just going with the flow and I think maybe that's a, a question that we can ask ourselves is, are my values, are my needs being met? And if yes, and I'm still easygoing, you know, that's a that's that's part of the, the, the person and that's, you know, but if it's no, actually my needs and my values and, you know, the things that I want aren't being met, then maybe I'm not easygoing and maybe I am people pleasing. That's so true. And that just goes back to what you were saying where it always, as as our conversations always almost end off, is like it starts with yourself. It's like it needs to almost be something that you, if you cannot list your values off by hand, which I've witnessed in interviews that I've had with with potential employees where, you know, that's something that might be a quite a hard question for some people or, you know, they've just got a one-liner answer for their values. But if you can list down your exact values and who you are knowing what is okay and what is not okay, if that is like in, in black and white, when those sorts of scenarios come up that sort of challenge that and challenge your values, it's an uh, immediate alarm bell, which is something in my 20s I didn't have because I didn't have those conversations of my values, of my, you know, who I am. So the alarm bell would come up later and in hindsight, you'd be frustrated with yourself or it would come up at a stage when it's too late the yeah, you're sitting in a bigger conflict situation and more people are upset because you didn't recognize it earlier. Yeah. Boom, drop the mic. There's our, there's our episode for the day. <laughs> oh, it was good chatting and I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Hey guys, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please can you subscribe so that you are notified as soon as new episodes drop and share the stream podcast with your friends and family and co-workers who are just as inquisitive as you are about learning and improving their quality of life. And then lastly, if you want more mental health and business resources, inspo and podcast recommendations, just a reminder to subscribe to my monthly stream newsletter. No spam, just pure, positive value delivered straight to your inbox.